Welcome to the SF Weekly Podcast. I'm Nick Veronin, your editor in exile, and I am joined by Kevin. No coincidences, Hume. How are you doing today, Kevin? Doing all right, man. How's it going? Going all right. Going all right. Um, what do you know about numerology, Kevin? Oh, gosh. Um, I know... I don't really know a ton. I just know that people put a lot of... Uh, you know, significance in numbers. Uh, what was that Jim Carrey movie? What was it? The number 23 or something oh, like that? Yeah. Was that one of his more serious? Uh, yeah, his, uh... like super schlocky and bad that I've never seen. <laughs> no. I, I haven't seen that one. I haven't seen that one. Yeah. Anyway, I will attempt to explain <laughs> numerology um, by, uh, by giving you an example. All right. Born on... 12 February 1809, Abraham Lincoln's simple life path was a five. The number of freedom and slavery, one plus two plus two plus one plus eight plus zero plus nine equals 23, which is greater than two plus three equals five. Lincoln's natural soul from the vowels in his names is a nine. Uh, in his name is a nine. His material soul is a five. Makes perfect sense to me. Not crazy at all perfectly sane way to live your life yeah, you didn't follow any of that <laughs> I, br I bring this up because of um speaking of letters and names the letter q mm -hmm. unfortunately it's not the cool q that gadget procuring spy uh in james bond no i'm talking about QAnon, the loosely organized band of quacks and unfortunate souls who will believe anything they read in the youtube comments <laughs> Um, apparently one of the wacko theories floating around in the Q verse is that Donald Trump was going to return to power on March 4th. I really don't have the time or energy to totally break it down for you, but, um, it has something to do with numerology and, and here's another, um, explanation by way of example. Um, you might enjoy this one even more. <laughs> Ass assuming the act of 1817 is legit and it is also one plus eight plus one plus seven equals 17. No coincidences, Kevin. And assuming Trump has undone it, Guerrillion links provided in 1817 thread to prove it. I don't know what that means. That's a parenthetical. I don't know what any of this means. And assuming that central banking system and petrodollar is trashed, it is Fed absorbed the central banks collapsing. And assuming we need a new system of sovereignty slash energy already set up, allow me to present you some other, in scare quotes, indirect, in parentheses, all caps, interdasting facts. What? At the end, you can come to your own conclusion. Um, uh huh. So that is supposed to explain why Trump was going to um, return to power yesterday. Um, <laughs> the Capitol I Police came out in force. What, what, uh -huh. what are you saying? I was going to say, I know that the only reasoning behind what I've seen uh, surrounding what was supposed to happen that didn't happen, of course, yesterday. Uh, was it just because March 4th was uh, the old inauguration date before mm. we moved it under FDR uh, to January 20th? Oh, FDR. That's yeah. that's a conspiracy in and of itself. The uh, <laughs> what a, that that socialist who won World War II. Uh, <laughs> Pushing the justices of the Supreme Court up to nine. Yeah. Uh, pull, pulling us out of the Great Depression, public works projects. What a jerk. Yep. FDR was. 
He was played by Bill Murray in one of the biopics. I never saw that one. Did you see really? that one? I've never seen that either. Mm-mm. I forget what it's called. I think that one's kind of about <laughs> how he was into his cousin. We have a Savage Love uh, <laughs> column about that uh, in this week's uh, this week's issue. So that's a hell of a segue. <laughs> so anyway, um, so there you have it. Though I mean, the Capitol Police were on high alert. No attack materialized. Thank goodness. Um, so even though the repubs gave Trump a bunch of FaceTime at CPAC last week, it seems that there really is um, that this was just a big nothing burger. And, and I hope it continues to stay that way. Um, yep. Their golden God say, has I to fucking that, wait another day. In the, in the, is, is this just me? I mean, I'm sure there's other people like this and this is kind of fucked up, but like my news feed now is just way tamer and I think my blood pressure is doing better because of it, but it's, it is a little less exciting. <laughs> it's like, I, I'm not getting that dopamine, like, God damn it. Every time I, I don't care, phone. I don't Good. care. Fuck all that, dude. I feel so much more relaxed. It's, it's so much better. And this is 2021. We're talking about a year that's been not great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a continuation of all the, bullshit we've been going through for the last year yeah but i mean just that small paradigm shift from one administration to the other absolutely changed the way we all feel and perceive you know everything yeah, has totally. changed in a, in in a small way so we don't have somebody getting up in front of the press corps every day and just like being like nah that didn't happen what <laughs> this is video evidence <laughs> i mean if mean? they showed up at all Right. It's more like we don't have somebody rage tweeting at 4 a.m. And it Mm. vastly affects the everything in the country, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The idea that enough people believe this stuff that and we have to be worried about it is is unfortunate and terrifying. Yeah. Also, also terrifying. Robot hounds from hell. The (laughs) NYPD has one of those fucking Boston Dynamics digital dogs now. Oh, yeah, I haven't heard about this, but I know those I've seen, you know, I haven't seen the latest one, but I've watched those there being in development. And man, those things are terrifyingly awesome. Terrifyingly awesome. Yeah, well, I I talk, I mean, not a bunch is known about this, but it just makes me think of the militarization of the police and the the black mirrorization of the police. Have you seen seen that episode? Yeah, dude, that episode is freaky. Black and white. Good episode. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I don't know what you do if you're being chased by a a digidog. I think they call Uh, it a digidog. Digidog. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. Find a baseball bat or something. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. You got to get like a, you got to be walking around with like an EMP ready to go off. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's something that is going to happen at some point in, in the, like all these, you know, like dark, uh, what was that one? Dark angel. Did you ever see that years back? Jessica mm-hmm. Alba. Mm, um, okay. I remember now. Was it a TV yeah. show or was it a, a, yeah, it was a TV show about like life following an EMP. And I feel like EMPs are definitely something that is going to happen. Like somebody is going to threaten to use one or it will happen at some point just because I, everything will shut down. Like some, I, I don't think nuclear war is the thing that's going to shut down the world in the future. It's going to be an EMP of some sort or something like that. Yeah. 
I mean, just look at what happened in Texas when a storm almost, you know, overthrew their grid. Yeah. I mean, but just think about the the ramifications if somebody actually figured out how to do an EMP. It would be maybe they don't even need to, though. Maybe it's just a hack, you know, or like, um, you know, several years back at some power station in San Jose, they don't I still don't know if they think this is it was a terrorist attack or just some drunk rednecks or whatever, whatever, like, but like somebody got into like this big PG&E power station mm-hmm. and just shot it up. Oh, and it, um, it like cut off power to a, a significant portion of residents in the South Bay. I think yeah, I, I made mean, that whole thing up. No, you can look at <laughs> New York times and look it up somewhere. It was, it was a story. Oh man. Can you hear my cat? I don't know. I have four. So I thought it was one of mine. <laughs> You got four? I yeah. thought you had three. Well, you get three, three are hers, and then I brought one. Oh, cute, So we cute. have four. That's good. Yeah. That's good. One's here right now. Oh, hello. Uh, what, Merlin. What, is that a boy? Merlin. Yeah. Oh, what Hi, a bad boy. Merlin. Merlin. He doesn't want to look at all. No. He's like, I got better, better shit He's to do. Now. Oh, Merlin. Cool. Okay. Anyway, um, on the subject of conspiracy theories, I got to say, and I promise this will all make sense in a minute, and that it isn't really about you. Um, maybe it's a little bit about me. But um, the, the podcasting service we use, Zencaster, shout out to Zencaster, um, recently introduced this feature where they only um, – where you know we used to only speak to each other over the web, and it records our individual audio streams, but it now has video. And I got to say, um, your hair's looking long, but it's looking strong, Kevin. You got good <laughs> hair. Thanks. Um, yeah, I feel like that's a shout out to my grandfathers. Uh, shout out to, what was your granddad's name? Uh, Cecil. Cecil, good name. Yeah, yeah. So what am I getting at? Uh, well, I was reading an article about the Newsom recall, which continues to gain steam the other day, um, and apparently it's being bankrolled by some deep-pocketed Republicans and techno-libertarians. Big surprise. Um, <clears throat> here are some of their names. Former <laughs> Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee. Of course. San Francisco venture capitalist Dixon Dahl. Sequoia Capital partner Doug Leone. Real estate developer Greg Palmer. Now, if you know me, you know how shallow and vain I am. <laughs> but you also you also know that I'm not too big on conspiracy theories. But there is one that I do entertain, Kevin, and I've probably brought it up on the podcast before. But um, you know, just as Hal Holbrook tells Robert Redford in that dramatically lit and cavernous parking garage in All the President's Men, just follow the hair. In the same way that Donald Trump's corruption lies and megalomania were perfectly encapsulated by the morbidly fascinating links he clearly goes to in order to obfuscate his baldness, I do believe we may understand a bit more about the motivations of Mike Huckabee, Dixon Dahl, Doug Leone, and Jeff Palmer by following the follicles. I mean, sure, they're probably pissed for lots of reasons, like Huckabee clearly concerned about the soul of anyone who kisses someone they aren't married to um, and, and getting that fat bass tone 
He's a bass player. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I remember seeing him playing bass on, yeah. some, you know, something. I think he played bass on the Colbert Report when, like, he was, you know, doing that back when, you know, in the yeah. before times when it was right. like, kind of like, oh, isn't isn't Huckabee kind of cute? I mean, no slap bass, though. That's mm-hmm. that's the devil's way. He's not cool enough for that. <laughs> um. I'm thinking most of these other guys are upset about how much money they're giving to the Golden State on an annual basis, probably. Mm-hmm. All those empty one-room offices in Delaware and banks in the Cayman Islands can't shelter every penny. But I have to believe that some of it simply comes from jealousy. At 53 years old and standing six, six foot three with hazel eyes, a chiseled chin, and perhaps, most importantly, a strong crop of hair, Gavin simply looks better than these, well... Baldies. Remember Space Jam, Kevin? <laughs> yeah. Even after the Monstars called him a chicken and crumpled him into an, an actual basketball and didn't just dunk on him, they literally dunked him, breaking the backboard. Um, it was the Baldy remark that got under Michael Jordan's skin. Baldy. I mean, and he's Michael Jordan. I'm not just saying that he's the Michael Jordan of whatever, of something. He's literally the Michael Jordan of Michael Jordans. Yeah. And he ain't got shit to prove. And yet, baldy. People are sensitive <laughs> about that shit. They are, man. It's not a joke. So that's that's my theory about the the true the true childish schoolyard motivations <laughs> behind the recall. Um, Comes down to the hair. Getting kind of, getting kind of, getting, getting more serious. Um, I don't, I don't know if they'll have the votes, but it seems like they might have the signatures. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, coming up on the podcast, we talk with staff writer Benjamin Schneider about his latest story on Muni. San Francisco's transit agency is suffering from a longstanding structural deficit. The pandemic didn't help. We'll find out what the agency is doing to get back on track. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Benjamin Schneider, staff writer for SF Weekly. In this week's issue of the paper, Ben attempts to shed a light on all that ails the San Francisco Municipal Transit Agency, the SFMTA, often referred to as Muni. Welcome back to the podcast, Ben. Thanks for having me, Nick. Your story is titled, How Will Muni Get Its Finances Back on Track? And it is about Muni's growing structural deficit, which has been growing for um, some years now. How did Muni get this structural deficit and, and how bad is it? Uh, so it's it's no secret that mass transit agencies around the country are in pretty dire straits right now um, with ridership plunging you know, as much as 80% for, um, for BART, for instance. But Muni actually has problems that go back uh, farther than just the pandemic. Um, and uh, it's sort of this confluence of issues that has, has caused what, what they refer to as a structural deficit. Basically, 
a deficit that keeps getting added onto with each passing year. Um, and a big part of it is deferred maintenance. So Muni is an extremely old transit system. It's the first big city public transit system in the US, founded in 1912. Um, and those cable cars um, and some of the historic streetcars are actually even older than that. So they've got this technology infrastructure that is just really old, over 100 years old in some cases, that needs to be maintained. Um, and in addition to that, there's just a lot of stuff that SFMTA controls. They also control the streets and the signage in San Francisco in addition to public transit. So um, they have uh, a total of $14 billion of assets under their purview. And so you know, a couple hundred million dollars each year needs to go into maintaining those assets to make sure they're in a state of good repair um, and pretty much without fail, um, especially over the last 20 years or so, they haven't been able to, to um, do all the work they need to do to keep the system in good shape. Um, so that's sort of the origin of this, this structural deficit. Um, and what's happened is over the pandemic, as ridership has also declined, parking revenues have declined, the city budget has declined. Um, so all these places where Muni used to get money and extra money to kind of patch over um, the deficit each year are kind of evaporating. So it, it sort of prompted this reckoning where Muni says, um, you know, at this point, this, this strategy of, of deferring maintenance and kind of using one-time revenue sources is just not going to fly. So they need to come up with stable, long-term funding sources that can kind of change this situation, get them on a different trajectory. Okay, so what does this mean to a a rider? You are a member, um, full disclosure, of the San Francisco <laughs> Transit Riders Union, a union that, um, a, a local organization that, you know, tries to, uh, well, why don't you explain what it is? And, and why don't you explain what the stakes are for riders here? Yeah, so the um, the Transit Riders Union is a, a group that advocates for better immunity service, basically. Um, and yeah, Nick and I had an interesting conversation about whether it was appropriate for me as a journalist to be part of it. <laughs> right. um, and yeah, I mean, something that I didn't include in my article and disclosure is that I kind of feel like, you know, if um, car owners can be members of AAA or other sort of, you know, insurance groups that do lobbying on behalf of drivers, I think it's kind of an equivalent situation where, yeah. um, you know, as someone who doesn't have a car and primarily relies on Muni, at least before the pandemic, to get around, um, it's sort of, you know, this is an interest of mine as a person in the world, not like a political thing. Anyway, um, you know, the reason that, that people who ride Muni would be interested in this structural deficit is that it has a, um, a major bearing on how Muni is able to provide service. So if a, a lot of the like a big a big thing that comes up in these conversations is the overhead wires that power the light rail trains and the trolley buses like the 24 and the one um, the buses that are connected to the wires with the overhead things um, those wires are kind of sensitive and when they come down um, that creates huge delays it can create you know um, shutdowns of the subway service, which we've seen in previous years. So um, the only way that Muni can really reliably provide the service that it has promised to provide is by making sure that all this infrastructure is in a state of good repair. Um, and then beyond that, in order to 
expand or provide more service than it, it has historically or add new lines, you know, you kind of have to make sure you've got the existing system working before you can then kind of embark on expansions. So those are the reasons why this would be of interest to um, everyday riders. Right. Um, and AAA, uh, I still don't have it. Uh, it's, I think it's like a hundred bucks a year. And if you are a driver, uh, a friend of mine has saved me on one or more occasions. Uh, they'll tow you really far. They'll come out. It's, it is, um, I wouldn't expect any journalist who can afford to have AAA to not have AAA. So, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, enough about that. Um, Muni has also been plagued by mismanagement for years. Um, you laid out in, um, the last couple of questions, just how sprawling the network is and, and how difficult it is to, to take care of, I mean, understandably to take care of, of, of a system like this. But, um, a recent city audit found that the, their munis inability to uh, communicate with city departments cost years and millions of dollars in delays. What's been going wrong and how can they improve? Yeah, I, I think, this is definitely a complicated issue, and I think maybe Joe Eskenazi, who was an SF Weekly staff writer a few years ago, he was writing about this for years, and um, this is something that uh, I'm no expert in. But um, at least as far as this city audit goes, um, it, it basically made clear what was known for people who are following major projects um, that Muni has been working on, like this Van S um, bus rapid transit corridor or the central subway that... Um, the projects were poorly managed and they um, wasted money and time in delivering them. Um, and it sounds like, you know, there were decisions that were made in some cases over a decade ago that um, just set Muni up to fail basically at, at these projects. And I mean, these are all kind of relative because the projects are going to be complete. And, um, you know, 10 years from now, I don't know if people are going to be thinking about Muni failed because they'll be riding the, the new infrastructure. But um, yeah, I mean, certainly for people right now, it's really frustrating. The Van S thing, I think, is the, probably the most visible symbol of um, what what has gone wrong with Muni. I mean, if you've been down Van S in the last two or three years, it's just this tangle of construction zones and weird lane shifts. Um, and uh, it, it didn't have to be that way. <laughs> it, it, uh, and that's actually something that was brought up at this this meeting, um, the CFO of Muni, Jonathan Brewers, was saying, we actually learned from the Van S project and said, you know, we don't have to do everything all at once. We can actually deliver rider benefits before we, we build all this complicated infrastructure stuff. And so that's their strategy on Geary, which is ultimately slated to have a similar um, bus rapid transit line as Van S. But before they really do that, they're, they've just said, we're going to use paint to, to carve out uh, lanes, especially for the buses that run down Geary. And that basically immediately helps riders save time um, and keep the buses out of traffic before they embark on this complicated infrastructure stuff. Um, so that, that was sort of the, the problem and then the lesson that um, Muni learned from, from the Van S project. Yeah, um, makes sense to me. Um, what are some options for getting Muni the funding it needs? Yeah, so the the most um, near term things that could happen are a uh, a bond measure that would raise four hundred million dollars and would be 
put before the voters probably in um, in 2022 sometime, could be as soon as June of 2022. Um, there's also a parcel tax, which in California, because we can't raise property taxes, um, those are sort of <laughs> quasi-property taxes that um, would would raise, I think, about $180 million a year if that were passed. So basically a little addition to property taxes. And I'm not sure if that would be for the citywide or for specific areas of the city. I think that's still to be determined. And then the final thing that we could see in the very near term is a reauthorization of the Prop K sales tax, um, which is something that voters approved 15 years ago or something. Um, and it's a half-cent sales tax that funds transit in San Francisco. And it's going to expire in 2034, but muni officials want to reauthorize it uh, sooner rather than later so they can basically um, make long-term funding plans and borrow against future revenues from that. Um, and so those are, those are sort of the tip of the iceberg. And then beyond that, there's a number of other ideas, um, ideas I think that would be more exciting to um, you know, kind of hardcore transit and bike advocates who really want Muni's funding to come from directly charging cars. So there's congestion pricing, which is being talked about, um, that's being studied by, by city agencies where um, New York City is doing this very soon. Basically, cars who drive downtown would be charged um, a, a toll to enter downtown San Francisco. Um, and then there's talk of increasing residential parking permits um, those placards that you see in the back of cars, um, those are currently, um, you know, pretty widely thought to be very below market value. I think they're about like eighty-five or a hundred dollars a year, something like that. Um, so, so people say, you know, you've got to extract the true value of this parking from people who rely on it. Um, increasing other kinds of parking fees, parking taxes at parking garages, raising those. Um, so, those are some of the other ideas. Um, that a lot of advocates want, but the flip side is that those are the much more politically difficult things to get past because there still are a lot of people in San Francisco who rely on cars and um, you know wouldn't necessarily be thrilled with those ideas. So I think that's sort of where the politics of this is going. There are going to be people who are saying, why aren't we sort of disincentivizing car use and, and generating revenue from cars? And other people who are like, I rely on my car and I don't want to do that. So I think that's where this is going. Yeah. Um, so that's going to be a big challenge. Um, here's this <clears throat> revenue stream that they've identified, but there is going to be pushback. We, we know there will be. Um, are there any other challenges, that um, big ones that Muni faces um, seeking more funding? There are. Um, yeah. So there's definitely um, a conflict between some of the sort of social um, and equity-oriented goals of Muni and of San Francisco and of these financial um, needs. So Supervisor Dean Preston has recently called for Muni to be free for the duration of the pandemic. And so that wouldn't be a huge financial lift. I think it would, I don't think Muni officials are thrilled about it because they're already working with less money, but he has previously said he wants to make Muni free you know, for everyone forever. So if that were the case, that is $200 million a year that kind of goes away. And so, you know, that's a really good social equity goal, but it's a very difficult financial proposition. So that's just one case. And another one is um, development at Muni-owned property. Um, and so what we've seen in San Francisco is that 
a lot of advocates call for um, development on city-owned property to be 100% affordable housing. And so if that were to happen at these muni-owned properties, muni wouldn't be able to extract any revenue from, from the properties. Um, so those are a couple more of these kind of looming conflicts when it comes to how to balance those, those priorities. And you just mentioned Supervisor Dean Preston um, calling for Muni to be free for the duration of the pandemic, for Muni to be free forever. Um, how does this? Uh, how does? How do the issues with Muni translate into city politics? Yeah, I think there's a conflict between sort of the the more like technical manager type people who actually run Muni and who um, make the sort of day to day decisions. And their political overseers, whether it's the mayor um, or or supervisors, um, or sort of p- kind of like power brokers, which is a, a fun San Francisco term. Um, so you know, for instance, the central subway that is almost done, um, the the route of that subway was very much influenced by um, Rose Pack, the famous Chinatown power broker, um, and other sort of interests. The Union Square. Uh, uh, business owners had a huge role in that as well. Um, and so, you know, whenever you're doing anything in San Francisco that's big, that people are paying attention to, you know, Muni can't act unilaterally. It's, it's working with this system of political and sort of business interests that are um, shaping these outcomes. Okay. Well, um, there is a lot behind um, the, you know, situation where the the Muni bus uh, or trolley is late. Um, There's all all of these things going on behind the scenes, and it's an interesting story. You can read it on our website under the News tab. Um, Thanks so much for joining us, Ben. Thanks, Nick. for tuning into this week's edition of the SF Weekly Podcast. The episode was produced by me, Nick Veronin. My inimitable co-host is Kevin Hume. Mike Huguenor is our audio engineer. For more hot takes, deep dives, and alternative views on San Francisco news, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week. stop it.